Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Again, we're going to be reading a text, considering a text in the next 25 minutes about God's great judgment upon this world. This text will be, uh, we'll actually be looking at two chapters, and we'll be considering the Noah story, the flood story. So as we uh, begin in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, we come to the third major section after the introduction to the book of Genesis. These sections are all marked out. You can see them in any English version of the Bible you have. Usually you'll come across the phrase, these are the generations of. And that marks out a new section. So in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, you would see the phrase, these are the generations of, and then you would find the main character of this story is Noah. And so from Genesis 6 and verse 9, the whole way till the end of chapter 9, we will consider the Noah story. Now, we're actually going to take two weeks uh, to work through that. I mean, I, I want to go quickly, but, you know, I can't produce miracles. I don't believe in miracle workers anymore. I can't cover all of these chapters in one sermon. So uh, we're going to go move quickly through them, but this section is uh, describing four full chapters of treatment regarding Noah and the flood. This whole story of Noah revolves around one of the most important moments in the history of the world, uh, the moments of the worldwide flood. Before we look at the text, I just want to briefly uh, answer a question. How should we approach this story? Of course, it's a literal story. We believe it happened. That's clear. It's in Scripture. But how should we approach this story? Well, often uh, we come to the Noah and the Ark story with warm, light thoughts about a boat with, friend, with uh, all kinds of friendly, furry, and warm, fuzzy animals in it. Some of us think of a cute little boat with a small house in the middle or something like that and a window with a giraffe's head sticking out of it. Um, we think that because of the children's books we've read, the illustrations. Perhaps it was even on the, the wall in the nursery uh, that you grow up in as a child. But Noah's ark, Noah and the ark story, is not a children's story. I think children should know it and understand it, but it should not leave us with a, an impression of warmth and uh, you know, good things uh, it should also uh, leave a lasting impression on us. I think Noah's Ark story is a terrifying and tragic story about God's wrath turned against sin. This is one of the most profound demonstrations of God's wrath against sin that you will find anywhere in the Bible and anywhere in the history of man. These pages, Genesis 6-9, through 9, describe a time when Every, every air-breathing creature outside of the ark died. After struggle and panic and fear, each creature drowns. As a matter of fact, one theologian and preacher, his name is Jim Hamilton, uh, he entitled his sermon on this text, When God Made the World a Graveyard. When God made the world a graveyard, this is a time of God's wrath, and yet we need to consider this together 
for the next two weeks. So with this in mind, you might think to yourselves, well, what an encouraging sermon Pastor Brent chose uh, for today. I'm sure I'm going to leave here joyful in the midst of this difficult week. And and I just want to say this. If, If you hang on the whole way through the sermon, I think that you will leave here today singing and rejoicing in the deliverance that God has given to you. Because you've got to hold on the whole way through. And I think you will rejoice. With this in mind, we begin our study of the flood story. We're going to take two weeks through it, as I said. Um, once we consider the intro to the flood story, we'll look at the story itself, which comes in four scenes. Okay, so today we look at the intro in the first two scenes. We'll look at Genesis 6-9 and chapter 7, through, through chapter 7. And, uh, and then next week we'll look at the the next two scenes. So let's begin with the introduction. Look in your Bible at Genesis 6 and verse 9. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The introduction here to the flood story comes in the form of a contrast, a contrast between Noah and the other people of his generation, uh, outside of his family. And this contrast explains to us why God decided to bring the judgment of the flood upon the earth. Okay, so the contrast sets up Noah and the other inhabitants. So first, the first verses here are about Noah. We learn Noah was an upright man and that Noah was whole or complete. I think this indicates that not that Noah was perfect. He was not a perfect individual. He was a sinner, but it indicates that he had a wholehearted commitment to God. We even find out in the text that Noah was like Enoch before him in, his, in the previous generation. Noah walked with God, which I, I think implies that Noah had repented of his sin and asked God for deliverance from that. No one walks with God who's, uh, who is a sinner whose sin has not been forgiven. And these desires and commitments in Noah's life make him far different than the other inhabitants of the world during his day. During the creation account, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, you know, God does all of the creating act, and then it says that God looked down upon the earth that he had created, and God saw that it was what? Good. Here the word good in our text is replaced. God looks down, and he sees that the world that he created was corrupt. Corrupt. It wasn't good. It was corrupt. And this word corrupt becomes a major word that Moses emphasizes in the introduction. He repeats it three times in verses 11 and 12 that we just read. Look again at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. This word corrupt uh, in other places in the Hebrew Bible can be translated spoiled or ruined, if that helps you. Spoiled or ruined. God saw that the beautiful world that he created was ruined. And the people of Noah's day had not only ruined themselves, they had ruined or made ruins out of God's world. And so, as we'll continue to read, if if you look down in verse 13, you'll see that God responds in like fashion. 
Okay, so in verse 13, and most English Bibles actually don't really help you see this as much. They, for variety, they change the translation, but this word corrupt is going to be found again in verse 13. So look at verse 13. Uh, it says, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will corrupt. I will destroy them with the earth. This as well will be found down in verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to ruin, to corrupt all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Here God says something like this. You ruined creation with your sin. Now I will ruin you and creation. Another way of saying this is, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to bring on you what you deserve. Now, earlier in our text, in verse 11, we found a little bit more out about what this corruption is, what this ruination is. And and that's when uh, Moses says that it led to violence. Or uh, look again at verse 13. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. Violence is the cold-blooded infringement of the personal rights of others. It's often motivated by greed or hate or some other arrogant sin. And so violence speaks of physical violence or brutality. And so I think one of the things we need to recognize about the flood is far from being an innocent creation at this point, human beings are filled with sin. The text right before this made this abundantly clear, but we we looked at it like a month ago now. And the last time we were in Genesis, when the text says that every intention and thought of men and women were only evil continually. And so men and women, that is why God brought judgment upon the, the world. And so in the flood, old men and women die in the flood. Young men and women die in the flood. Children die in the flood. Strong animals, fast animals, little animals, large animals, they all drown as a result of human sin. Men and women, that's how serious sin is. It corrupts and ruins God's good creation. It brings him sadness and eventually leads to his judgment. But we need to move beyond the introduction to the story itself, and I want to look at these first two scenes with you. I'm going to do my best to unfold them for you and emphasize them the way I think Noah emphasizes them in the text. Okay, so I have four literary scenes that work our way through the flood story, okay, the the Noah story. The first one is what I call the divine speech scene. The second one is the flood scene. The third that we'll look at next week is the waiting scene. And the fourth is the blessing scene. Four scenes walking you through the story. Okay, so the first one I called the divine speech scene. Now, why do I call it that? Well, it's because the nature of what we find in the last paragraph in chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, the divine speech scene. When you're looking at a story in the Bible, one of the most important things for you to do is to identify who is speaking. 
Okay, sometimes it's going to be some character in the story is, is speaking to other characters within the story. Uh, other times it'll be the author, the biblical author, the, and he acts like a narrator. So it can be a character in the story, it can be the author, or sometimes it's God himself. And that's the point here. You can see this very clearly in your Bible. Matter of fact, I, I just would encourage you perhaps to even mark this in your Bible. Look at the beginning of the next paragraph. Look at Genesis 6.13. It says, and God said to Noah. Okay, now, now look at the beginning of the next paragraph, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah. In both paragraphs, what you have is an address from God to Noah. Okay, now both paragraphs actually also contain a long quote from God. In fact, that's like almost the whole paragraph. Now, it is interesting that both stories end the same way with, with Moses' comment about the obedience of Noah. You can see that in chapter 6, verse 22, right at the end of that first paragraph. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And look at Genesis 7, verse 5. Look at how that second paragraph ends. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So this first scene revolves around two divine speech stories, okay? God is preparing Noah for the flood. So we'll look at the first one here. Uh, divine speech number one, look at uh, verse 13 of chapter six. And God said to Noah, quote, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms of the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and, and, shall come, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall all, male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. End quote. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Here, we'll go quickly through this first speech, but God, God's speech picks up on the comment regarding the violence of the world. God notices the violence in the world, and it is so bad that God tells Noah that he is going to corrupt or ruin the good creation that he had formed. Yet in this act of judgment, the text is clear that God is going to spare Noah and his family. I think the core of this first speech can be formed around three commands that God gives to Noah. He says, first, Noah, you need to make an ark, then you need to make rooms in the ark, and, and finally you need to make a roof for the ark. 
As we come to this part in the story, it's interesting that scholars give a lot of attention to the shape and the size of the ark itself. Okay, now, there's a lot of places you can read about this. There's a lot of information you can collect on this. I I can't go through all of it with you. I'm not going to say much here. I'll just say a little bit. What I'll say is that the the ark, if you look at the the dimensions of the ark, ark, it's a large box-like appearance. It would be quite stable and would float well when you look at how it's described here. The text says that it would be 45 feet high, 75 feet wide, and 400 feet long. Okay, 45 by 75 by 450 feet. Perhaps you can't visualize that very well. So I was here early this morning marking off the auditorium. I was walking around here in the dark. Well, I turned on the light, little light. And so uh, to put it in uh, you know, uh, terms that we can all understand, the ark would be about as wide as this auditorium, from that wall to this wall. About as wide as this auditorium. But the ark would be four times longer than from this wall to that wall. So, okay, so you could add four of our auditoriums. Boom, 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 boom. It'd be a little bit over that. And when you put all that together, okay, you would only have one floor of the ark. The ark has three floors, and so you'd have to kind of like stack three, or uh, stack them three high. Perhaps uh, some of you can picture it better because you've made, you know, the trip to the ark experience in the Midwest, but I want to give you a picture of what this would be like. The ark could easily contain the approximately 75,000 animals that would populate it. Uh, different estimates on that by different scholars. There, there would even be extra room in the ark for things like insects, food, and living quarters. So those would be important as well. But God's first speech here is primarily about what the ark is to look like. Now, one of the interesting things I find about this first speech is that there's not really much attention at all given to Noah's efforts in building the ark. Like, we, we all know stuff from our childhood. If, if you grew up in church, you're hearing the stories how long he worked on the ark and how he did that. There's not much about it, that in this part of the text. All we, we read is Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded. It's like, that's a lot of work to summarize with Noah did this. It must have taken Noah, of course, dozens of years to work, to cut down all the multitude of needed trees that he would be, to to collect, to convey them, to bring them to the building site, to fit and join them, uh, join the huge planks together. Moreover, it would cost him a fortune, right, to build a boat that is this massive in size, and then to provide it with sufficient food for all of the animals in the ark. But Moses wants to keep the narrative going, and so he goes to the second speech, and I want you to see that in verses 1 through 5. So let's go down to verse 1 of chapter 7. Divine speech number 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made 
I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded. This address, God speaks swiftly. He gives his own assessment of Noah's character. Early on, Moses had said that Noah was righteous and, and he was complete or whole. Here, God says, you are righteous before me in this generation. And then God explains that Noah is to take seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of clean animals into the ark. Different ideas about why seven pairs of clean. I I think it's likely for sacrifices to God during the flood and after. Finally, we learn in this text that in seven days it will begin to rain again. And and then again, we, we learn at the end that Noah obeys. He does everything that God commands. But these speeches in the Noah story are just preparatory. Not one drop of rain has come yet. And so things are going to pick up at this point in the story. Here, Noah is informed by God. The first speech coming from God to prepare the ark. The second one, years later, to tell him in seven days it's coming, Noah. You better prepare yourself. But this leads to the second scene. The second scene I call the flood scene. It goes from Genesis 7, verse 6, through the end of 24, and it comes in three paragraphs. Let's look at the first one in verse 6. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps in the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded him. So Noah and his family and all the animals here, they go into the ark. Uh, Early up in chapter 6, I I didn't say much about it, but in verse 20 we learn that these animals are just going to come instinctively to the ark. Noah doesn't have to go and collect them. I I think that reveals God's power. He's in complete control. While Noah is doing his work, God is working through the instincts of these animals to bring them to the ark. And then things begin to move forward. Okay, And, And this is a part in the story when the rain begins to fall. Look at verse 10. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day, 17th day of the month, on that day. You remember God told Noah, in seven days it's going to rain. On this very day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded. Here's another reference to God's commanding. And the Lord shut him in. In this paragraph, the waters begin to come. Verse 11, Moses speaks of two sources for these waters, the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven. These are... These two things have always been very intriguing to me. 
It's a bit of a mysterious metaphorical description of how God is going to bring water from below and from above. The fountains of the great deep could refer, could be explained in a few different ways. It could be that there were great fissures, fissures of water that would spring up from the ocean floor. Or it could mean that the floors of, uh, of the bottoms of the oceans rose up, causing the water levels to rise dramatically, I th- or some sort of combination of the two. The windows of heaven refers to God sending amazing amounts of water from the canopy above over the earth so that it rains day and night for 40 days in a row. This part of the narrative, of course, closes with Noah and his crew finding shelter in the ark, safe inside the door which God shuts. Okay, but I want you to see, and I'm going to take a little bit more time with the final part of this flood scene. Okay, verses 17 through 24, the last part of chapter 7. Okay, and right before we read, I want you to pay close attention in your Bible to how vividly Noah describes the flood. So that what you see here are waters increasing and increasing and increasing until the flood prevails over the whole earth, not regionally, universally, over the whole earth. Look at verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I'm just amazed at this point in the story. I've known the story for years. But when you look at how it's told, you consider how it's told, you, you see the emphasis of the biblical author. Here, this text emphasizes how the waters increase and prevail. Look at the verbs. Look at verse 17. The flood continued. Look at the middle of verse 17. The waters increased. Look at verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased. Look at the beginning of verse 19. The waters prevailed. Verse 20. The waters prevailed. At the end, verse 24. And the waters prevailed. This language of prevailing and increasing fills the whole paragraph. It frames it, too. There's only one part that doesn't mention it. That exception is verses 21 through 23. There's like this parenthetical attention to something where Noah explains verses 21 through 23 
that all flesh outside the ark is blotted out, actually says here, God blots them out. Now, one theologian was helpful to me, and he, he pointed out that in these verses, 21 through 23, you have an act of decreation. Decreation. It's interesting to me, like in verse 21, look, look there in verse 21 again. It says, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, and then you've got these beings, right? Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming things that swarm in the earth, and all mankind. The order of those creatures in this verse mimics the order of the creatures made by God on days five and six of creation. You have all these creatures passing away, except some of the water creatures, of course, all these creatures being blotted out, and then mankind is blotted out. So in this part of the story of waters increasing and prevailing, and then in the center you've got flesh dying. This is Noah and the ark. This is the flood story. It's a sad story. Everyone and every land and air creature outside the ark dies. This is God's severe judgment turned upon the world. These pages describe the days when God turned the whole world into a graveyard. But men and women, do you know that there is an even greater judgment coming? Like the moments of drowning, no doubt, would be terrifying and terrible. But how about an eternity of fire where the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched? Men and women, just as sure as older men and women and younger men and women and little children died in the waters of judgment, so too our lost neighbors will die and will endure the wrath of God against sin. No matter where they go, no matter where they run or crawl, they will never be able to escape. You say, that's severe judgment. Where do you get those concepts? Just read your Bible. Consider the warning of Jesus, for instance, in the Gospels. Matthew 24, you, you don't need to turn there, but Notice what Jesus says about his return. Verse 37 of Matthew 24, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's the warning of Jesus. When God comes in the end, it will be too late for many, many who will face the eternal wrath and judgment of God. Yet, 
There is a way for men and women, boys and girls, to be saved. Brothers and sisters, we have an ark. Jesus is our ark. He saves us. He is the one into whom people must enter. He is the vessel of salvation from God. He is the one who endured the waters of judgment and the waters of God's judgment and wrath for us. And so I could close in this way. I say, brothers and sisters, won't you believe these things? Won't you believe what this text says about God's judgment and wrath turned against sin? And won't you believe what God says about his only means of salvation? Won't you believe it enough to make a difference? Won't you believe this enough to tell lost people who are certain to face the judgment of God? You see, Noah believed, and the text says later in 2 Peter that he became a preacher of God's wrath and righteous righteousness. And so I close by asking you, how about you? Will you proclaim to others salvation from judgment through Jesus Christ, our Savior? Let's bow in prayer and consider this together. Lord, I confess to you, it's so easy, so easy for me to read the flood story, to hear the flood story, and to not be struck with the punishment that men and women, boys and girls, faced because human beings had corrupted this good world. They were filled with violence. It's, it's so easy, Lord, to read this story, to just think all the warm, light, fuzzy things. But this text is a text that talks about your judgment on sin. And Father, I confess to you that just as it is easy for me to read this ancient story and not be struck with its reality. So it is easy for me to live this life and not be struck with the reality of eternal judgment in a lake of fire. Forgive me. Forgive us, O Lord. You have brought us deliverance through the one who endured your wrath against our sin. May we proclaim him as the only way to be saved. Lord, give us strength to take advantage of the opportunities to tell our neighbors tell our friends that they need Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.